All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 begins, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the, sorry, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So before we really get into this passage, let's consider, let's recap where we've been. All right, Corinth, ancient city, was what we might call today a hot mess. There's sexual morality, there's members suing each other, there's people getting drunk on communion wine, there's arguments over spiritual gifts. Right? It's not the kind of church that you would recommend. If your friend says, I'm going to this new church, and you said, what's it like? And they described it like I just described it, you'd say, find a new church. That's not what Paul says, though. He has hope for the church. And then we get to chapter 15, and we see that there's some people even denying the resurrection. Now, they're not denying that Jesus himself rose, but rather they're denying that Jesus' death uh, affects our own, or Jesus' resurrection affects our own. They're, they're arguing that we don't rise from the grave. They probably thought that after death, we simply shed our body like a snake sheds its skin. We float up to heaven where we'll spend eternity as disembodied souls. That was kind of the common Greco-Roman belief about the, over, uh, the afterlife, so they were probably syncretists. They had probably confessed faith in Christ, but they hadn't fully formed their worldview around biblical truth and around godly wisdom. That's what we've seen throughout Corinthians. They haven't fully embraced godly wisdom from God's perspective. They're still drinking deeply of the wisdom of the world, which is actually foolishness. So in chapter 15, we see how utterly wrong their perspective is. As we've, as we've seen, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he rose from the dead not just for his sake, but as a firstfruits, which functions as a promise of our own future resurrection. More than a, a sort of down payment, maybe you're familiar with the idea of a down payment, and you may or may not actually finish making the payments. Jesus' resurrection is more than that. It's actually a guarantee of our own future resurrection. That's what we've been talking about over the past few weeks. So we begin our passage with this idea that, the fle that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. And when we first read that, it might sound like Paul's actually agreeing with the Corinthians. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom kind of sounds like he's saying the body is the problem. The solution is to get rid of the body. Sounds like he says bodies can't inherit the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. We'll see that soon enough. Understanding what he actually means here is kind of dependent on understanding the function of the phrase flesh and blood. We, we, we probably think, we just on our first reading, we think that what he's talking about are the, the constituent elements of our body, that we're part flesh and we're part spirit, part bone. But that's not how that phrase functioned in Jewish thinking, especially in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We see the phrase flesh and blood a number of times, and whenever it does, it refers not to mankind in general, or not even to, to mankind's body in general, but rather to man's weakness and vulnerability. It refers to the weakness and vulnerability of our flesh in this current state. So our current body, which has been subjected to futility, as Romans 8 says, our bodies, which are subject to corruption and decay, and degeneration, even as we talked about a little bit in theological equipping this morning. So Paul's point isn't at all that bodies can't inherit the kingdom, but rather that his current body isn't equipped to do so. 
It would be kind of like trying to breathe underwater without gills, right? It doesn't work. Or trying to fly without wings. Likewise, to try to inherit an imperishable kingdom and a perishable body doesn't work. So in a sense, Paul actually is kind of agreeing with the Corinthians. He is saying our human bodies are unfit for eternity. But he's also rebuking the Corinthians for not recognizing the reality that resurrection entails change, fundamental change, the nature of our bodies. That's what the Corinthians are missing in their thinking. The problem with our bodies isn't that they're physical. The problem with our bodies isn't that they're material. The problem with our bodies is that they're fallen, they're corruptible, they're perishable, they're deteriorating. Thus, in order for them to enter the kingdom, they must be made new. There must be a transformation. That's actually a pretty common biblical image. Think back to the stories of Daniel and of Esther. Both of them had opportunities to go before the king. But before they could enter the presence of the king, there there was a, a beautification process that must take place. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. In order to enter the presence of our king... We must be made new. We must be beautified. We must be transformed. We must undergo a metamorphosis. And that's what 51 and 52 tell us. Let's look at that. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So now we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere. We're getting in particular to the mystery in Greek, musterion. It doesn't really function like our English word mystery. We watch a mystery, and you you might be watching a mystery movie, and you have no clue who did it. That's not what mystery or mysterion originally meant in Greek. Mysterion in Greek refers to something which was previously hidden and indiscoverable, unattainable, unless it's been revealed, and now it has been revealed. So it refers, uh, refers to something that's previously hidden but is now subsequently revealed. So mystery in Greek literature would be like how you feel after the big reveal. Previously, you didn't know who did it, who committed the murder, who stole, who robbed the bank, whatever it might be. But then there's the big reveal in the movie, and you know that's mysterion. Something previously unknown, something previously unknowable, but now revealed. And what has been revealed is this, that not all Christians will die, but all will be changed. We briefly talked about this transformation, this change last week when uh, Jared quoted from Philippians 3, 20 through 21, which says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, notice this, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We saw this analogy of an acorn. An acorn doesn't remain an acorn. It's really difficult to imagine an acorn, this thing that you hold in your hand, growing up into this massive tree. You have an acorn, you can't attach a tire swing to it. You can't climb up into an acorn, and yet it will undergo metamorphosis. It will undergo transformation. It will undergo change, especially if it dies, and so shall we. Though Paul says not all will die, we'll get to that. But notice that word transform. We must be transformed. Why must we be transformed? Because the perishable can't inherit the imperishable. And then 
Paul says, not all will die. He needs to say that because he's just given in the, the, the previous uh, verses, he's just given this illustration of an acorn that must go in the ground, it must die in order for there to be life. So then the question would come, what if we don't die? What if Jesus returns before we die? So it makes sense he has to answer this question, the, the fact that some Christians will be alive whenever Christ returns. Not all Christians will die, but notice it says all will change. In fact, they must change. Paul talks about this idea that not all will die in 1 Thessalonians as well. By the way, that doesn't mean that Paul expects for himself to be alive. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. That's not his point at all. His point is that some Christians will still be alive. The gates of hell won't prevail against the church. So some Christians will be alive whenever Christ returns, whether that's in a millennia or five millennia or whatever it might be. So look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he addresses the same issue, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. By the way, the word caught up there. In Latin is uh, where we get the word rapture. And so if you're wondering, does the Bible teach a rapture? Yes. Does the Bible teach the rapture in the way that most Americans think of the rapture? No. We've talked about that theological equipping. Go back and listen to that. But notice there's two groups of Christians that he talks about. First are those who have fallen asleep, which we've seen as a metaphor for death. And then there's those who are still alive when Christ returns. But whether you die before Christ returns or whether you're still living at, uh, at that time, you will be changed. That's Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians. One of my favorite Christian writers, C.S. Lewis, great writer, not a great theologian, but he writes uh, about this sort of transformation uh, process in his book, The Great Divorce, which I've been uh, listening to uh, recently. And in this book, he describes this sort of uh, bus ride, taking passengers from hell to heaven. Again, not great theology, when they get to heaven, they find that their bodies must be reconstituted. The lights are too bright, so they need new eyes. The sounds are, are too loud for them. They need new ears. The grass is too sharp. It, uh, it literally penetrates. It pierces their feet. They need new skin. The rain is so heavy that it pierces people's bodies like bullets and so forth. So everyone who wants to actually stay in heaven or make it to the celestial uh, mountains in the, the language of the book must receive new bodies. They must be made more substantial. They must be imperishable. And in that book, that transformation process happens slowly and progressively. As they journey on, they get more substantial, more uh, imperishable, and so forth. Now, Lewis isn't intending to describe perfectly the theological process of transformation Especially because notice what Paul says of the transformation process. He says that it actually isn't a process at all. He says that it will happen in the blink of an eye or in a moment. The word moment literally means something which can't be cut. It's too small to be cut. The Greek word is uh, atomos, from which we get the word atom. 
Because originally physicists thought that the atom was the smallest unit in existence and that it couldn't be cut. So they named it after this Greek word. So Paul's point is that this is an instantaneous thing. The blink of an eye, like Thanos, the snap of the fingers, right? And in that moment, we're all suddenly, we're all decisively changed. Our perishable, body, uh, perishable bodies are renewed. Our mortal bodies are made immortal. When will this happen? He says, at the last trumpet. What's that mean? Well, it actually has three nuances that, uh, that Paul could be using. He could be using any of all of these nuances, the way that trumpets kind of function in, uh, in biblical literature. The first is that a trumpet often is used in apocalyptic and eschatological literature to symbolize a manifestation of God. God appears and there's a trumpet. So the last trumpet is often connected to the return of Christ, the manifestation of the Son of God. That's certainly in view here in 1 Corinthians 15. But in addition to that, a trumpet was also used to rouse an army from sleep. So that nuance could also be on Paul's mind. Remember, he's just used the metaphor of sleep. Uh, Those who sleep the sleep of death. So that nuance could be in his mind. And then lastly, the trumpet was also a sign of warfare, in particular in victory. There was a victory sounding of the trumpet to signal that the battle is over. And that certainly fits with the context as well. There's this defeat of death in this passage. So any or all of those nuances could be symbolized by this idea of a trumpet call. Now Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians isn't to give us some sort of specific eschatological chronology Rather, his point is simply to connect together a few different events. The return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, what uh, theologians call the translation of those who are alive, and then the transformation of all. For theological purposes, it's often helpful for us to distinguish one or the other, to talk about the return of Christ, to talk about the resurrection of the dead, to talk about the translation of those who are alive, to talk about the process of glorification or transformation or whatever it might be. For theological purposes, it's sometimes helpful for us to look at one of those different nuances individually, but biblically they're all intended to show this one sort of crisis moment, this one instantaneous uh, uh, event. They're kind of links in a chain that can't be divorced from uh, each other. Now I want you to notice something. There's a little hidden linguistic treasure here. I want you to think back to high school English. Some of us, that was, you know, 25 years ago. For others, it was 45, 55 years ago. For some, it's maybe you're in there right now. But think back to uh, high school English. And you have the difference between active and passive verbs, right? Some of you are grimacing. You're trying to access that, and it just doesn't seem to be there anymore. Well, in an active verb, the subject does the action of the verb, whereas in a passive, the action of the verb is done to the subject. For example, think of the difference between saying, Tim punched Jared, and Tim was punched by Jared. Right? Those sentences have the exact same nouns, they have the exact same verbs, and yet they mean drastically different things. Right, I, say, I say all this to help you see that the verbs here in 1 Corinthians are passive. Notice that. We shall be changed. We don't change ourselves. We shall be raised. We don't raise ourselves. That's so important to see here. We don't change ourselves. We don't raise ourselves. The reason that's important is because it, flo- uh, it, it kind of goes along with this theme that we see throughout Scripture, which is we don't save ourselves. 
Jared talked about this a bit last week. It's something we explored quite a bit when we talked about church history. In particular, the early creeds and councils of the church and the early heresies that tried to infiltrate the church. At the end of the day, the main thing that has historically separated heresy from orthodoxy was in whether or not man could effectually reach up to God or whether God must reach down to man. Is there any sense in which we reach up to God? Is there any sense in which we contribute to our own salvation? Historically, that's the difference between heresy and truth. So you have heretics like Arius and Pelagius, and they said, yes, we reach up. Arius says that God was a created, or Jesus was a created being, and thus a creature, Jesus, reaches up to its creator. Or Pelagius says that we were born morally neutral, and thus we could do acts to reach up to God. But they were opposed by guys like Athanasius and Augustine, who said that that's blasphemy. There is this barrier that separates the creator from creation, and that no creature can ascend to heaven. So the creator must condescend. And he does so in the person of his son. The eternal, co-equal son of God condescends. He takes on flesh and he dwells among us. The son of God by nature becomes a son of man by incarnation. So that the sons of men by birth can become sons of God by adoption. We don't save ourselves. We don't raise ourselves. We don't change ourselves. To God alone be the glory. Let's keep going. Verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body put, uh, must put on immortality. Lest we misunderstand what Paul's saying here, he clarifies again. Paul is not saying that we simply get rid of our body like a snake sheds its skin. He's not saying that we just simply take off our bodies. Notice what he says. He, re- he says that we put on better bodies. He talks about this a bit more in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we, uh, we may be found not, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. Notice that, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Here's what this means: If our earthly tent is destroyed tent here referring to our bodies if our bodies are destroyed in other words if we die then we have a better building from God all right what happens to you between death and resurrection you are in the presence of God you're in heaven you're a disembodied soul or spirit or something you are spiritually in the presence of God but that's not the eternal hope that's not the eternal destiny all right notice that the goal isn't that we would be naked without our bodies unclothed, that we would be further clothed. That's really important to grasp. The Greeks and the Romans would have said the goal is to get rid of the body. Christianity says the goal is to get a better body, an imperishable body, an immortal body, a glorious body. Imagine, if you will, it's a Sunday morning. Your teenage son comes downstairs to go to church. He's wearing a Speedo tuxedo t-shirt, Crocs with socks, whatever it is. So you tell him, you can't wear that to church. So he goes back upstairs, he comes back down a couple minutes later, and he is completely undressed. He is completely naked. 
All right? What's the problem there? You said you can't wear that. But you didn't mean just take it off. You mean find something that's more appropriate. Take it off, yes, and then put on something better. That's what happens in the resurrection. We don't merely shed our bodies as if the problem is their body. The problem isn't the body. We've seen that throughout 1 Corinthians. The, the doctrine of creation shows that God loves the body. The doctrine of the incarnation shows that God loves the body. The doctrine of the crucifixion shows that God loves the body. The doctrine of the resurrection shows that God loves the body. The problem is not the body in and of itself. The problem is that this particular body has been subjected to futility because of the effects of sin. That sin has affected our bodies. We don't merely shed our bodies as if that's the problem. We receive better bodies, imperishable bodies, immortal bodies. Again, this has been really, really offensive and counterintuitive to the Greco-Roman way of thinking, in which the goal is just to take off the body so you can escape. The body is a, a, a prison for your soul. Now, anytime we talk about the resurrection body, we want deets, right? We want specifics. We want to know if we can fly or we can teleport, if we have scars, if Carl will have a flowing mane of hair. We want to know what age we'll be and if we'll have six-pack abs and be able to lift cars over our head or whatever it might be. If we'll have coffee stains on our teeth. If we'll have beer bellies. All right? These passages that we read in Scripture, though, they're not written to, to appease our curiosity. They're written to arouse our hope. So the Bible actually never tells us those details that we want to know. The Bible doesn't tell us what age we'll be in the resurrection. The Bible doesn't say how much hair we'll have or if we'll have hair. That's not the point. We don't need to know those things. What possible good would it be for you to know those things in terms of an eternal good? You're just curious. You don't need to know. Why would God reveal those things? How does that arouse your faith? How does that arouse your hope? How does that inspire you to obedience today? In fact, everything the Bible does say about the body in the, the resurrection is intended to inspire our hope and to, to, to arouse expectation in us. God doesn't give us all these irrelevant details. The Bible's not like an encyclopedia or Wikipedia or something like that. The Bible's written with a very specific goal in mind, which is to inspire us to hope for the future and to be active and obedient in the present. So God doesn't give these irrelevant, superfluous sort of details that we don't need to know. He gives us truth. And that truth is intended to change your life. What age will you be? What will you look like? Will you be able to ride around on huge eagles? I don't know. But I don't have to know, and you don't either. But what I do know, and what you need to know, is this. That your new body won't get sick. It won't get cancer. You won't develop Alzheimer's and forget people. You won't lose your sight or hearing. You won't die. There'll be no deterioration. There'll be no degeneration. And perhaps that sounds absurd. After all, everything in our existence has some sort of shelf life. Everything that we've ever known experientially is fading, is deteriorating, is degenerating. We've never experienced anything that's actually immortal or eternal in this world. We can't. By definition, we can't. So how can this be? I think the words of Augustine are helpful here. 
He wrote, people are amazed that God, who made all things from nothing, makes a heavenly body from human flesh. Is he who was able to make you when you did not exist, not able to make over what you once were? In other words, he's using an a fortiori argument. He's, using, he's saying, if God can do the harder thing, speak your body into existence, then he can do the easier thing. Take your existing body and transform it. If you can wrap your mind around the concept that God spoke, into, uh, spoke creation into existence from nothing, ek nihilo, it shouldn't be too hard to imagine that, that he can recreate you using existing materials. Let's keep going, For, uh, 54 through 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now on the surface, here's all that Paul's saying. On the surface, here's all Paul's saying. When the resurrection occurs, death will finally be destroyed. Way back in verse 26, we saw the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So theologically, we know death has been defeated at Christ's resurrection but it hasn't been destroyed. It's been defeated, but not destroyed. It won't be destroyed until Christ returns. That's why there's still death. If you wonder, why do Christians still die? Death hasn't been destroyed yet. Why? Because though death is defeated, it's not yet destroyed, and it won't be until Christ returns. And to make this point, Paul's going to splice together two Old Testament texts. The first is Isaiah 25.8, which says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. So he takes part of that and then he takes part of Hosea 13, verse 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. He takes those two passages, he splices them together, he mixes them up a little bit, he uses them for his own purposes. His purpose is not to give a verbatim quote his purpose is to give an illusion there and he takes those passages and he uses them as a taunt here in first corinthians notice that oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting what's paul doing there he's talking trash that's what he's doing he's talking trash to death he's basically saying like a like a honeybee that stings its victim and therefore dies that's what's happened with death. Death has stung the wrong guy. It stung the Son of God, and in doing so, it's triggered its own death. What does that mean? Well, a couple of times over the past few weeks, we've mentioned the fact that the Bible doesn't merely suggest that believers will be resurrected. It also says that unbelievers will be resurrected too. Now, that's not some form of universalism. Unbelievers are resurrected, but they're resurrected to eternal condemnation. But they're still resurrected nonetheless. And the point is that this is the logical implication of the defeat of death. If unbelievers aren't resurrected, then death keeps some of its prize. And thus it wins to some degree. And it, it gets to boast over God. Imagine a scenario where someone walks into this room on a Sunday morning and tries to take us hostage. I say try because in reality, I feel sorry for that person. There's probably, you know, a thousand guns in here. Let's imagine that's not the case. You know, we're at a church in California or something. <laughs> we have some people visiting from California, so that's for them. Um, so imagine that's the case. And their goal, 
is to kill as many of us as possible. And eventually the SWAT team uh, arrives, they breach, they kill all the terrorists, but in the process about 50 of us are killed. Now in that scenario, who wins? Well, the terrorists actually kind of win. Yeah, they die, but their will is done. So do some of us. That's what it would be like if any single person, believer or unbeliever, remains dead and unresurrected. In the end, no one will remain dead. In fact, according to Revelation 20, death itself will give up all the dead, and then death itself and Hades will be thrown in the lake of fire. Look at Revelation 20, 13 through 14. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, notice this, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Death is empty at this point. There is no one who remains dead at this point. Everyone has been resurrected. In other words, Christ's victory is an absolute and total triumph. It's not a compromise where death gets the body, but God gets the soul. It's not a compromise where death gets the unbelievers, while God gets the believers. In fact, even Satan doesn't get the unbelievers. Satan doesn't rule in hell. He himself is punished in hell. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire, also in Revelation. So we've mentioned that truth a few times over the past few weeks. And, and honestly, a lot of you have come up afterwards and said, I've never thought about that before. I've never thought about the fact that the unbelievers will be resurrected, and that has to be logically necessary in order for God to have this complete and total annihilation. So I thought it might be helpful to show you that this isn't just a theological or logical implication. This idea is explicitly taught in Scripture. So I'll show you three places where we see this idea of a resurrection not only of believers but also of unbelievers. We're going to look in three places. We're going to look in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the words of Jesus. And we're going to look at the words of Paul. All three of those say the same thing. That's pretty important, all right? Daniel 12:2. And many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. Notice this next phrase. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. Some awake to life. Some awake to shame and everlasting contempt. Contempt. John 5, 28 through 29. Jesus speaking, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. By the way, we've all done evil. None of us have done good. It's not what he's talking about. He's not giving... Uh, a statement about justification or faith or something like that. Doing good in this context is doing the will of God, which is believing upon the Son. And then lastly, Acts 24, written by Luke, but these are, this is a uh, Paul speaking here. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, that is Christianity, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection, notice this, of both the just and the unjust. So there you have it. Explicit texts that teach this idea. The defeat, the destruction of death, the ultimate annihilation, victory over death demands the resurrection of every single dead person, whether believer or unbeliever. What is different 
between, between a believer and an unbeliever is the result of the judgment and the destination after the, the, the judgment, not the fact of resurrection itself. They all share in that. Let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that first sentence. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. That's actually, I think, theologically the hardest sentence in our passage today. Let's try to break it down. The relationship between sin and death, that part of it, not that hard. That's fairly straightforward. Right? We know the wages of sin is death. So you kind of think of sin and death as these evil twins where one goes, the other comes as well. But why does he mention the law? What does the law have to do with it? We actually uh, explored this quite a bit when we preached through uh, Romans. For example, in Romans 5 and in Romans 7. We'll look at Romans 7 today, but I mentioned both of those chapters in case you want to go back and listen to those sermons. Romans 7, 7 through 11. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So think back to Genesis 1 and 2. There's no death because there's no sin. And there's no sin without some sort of law. Right? Had God never prohibited man from eating from the particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it wouldn't have been sin. He could have eaten from that tree. It wasn't inherently wrong. It was wrong because God said it that it was wrong. And so if there wouldn't have been sin, there wouldn't have been death. There wouldn't have been sin had God not created a law. If he had not said, you shouldn't eat of that tree. So you can see how even in Genesis, you have some sort of relationship between law and sin and death. Where there is no law, there is no sin. Where there's no sin, there's no death. So though the law itself is good, in and of itself, it has this unfortunate effect of arousing sin. Maybe you can remember this. How many of you as, as kids remember wanting to do something simply because... It was forbidden. Augustine talks about this in, in the Confessions. He talks about stealing fruit from a neighbor's tree. And he says, I had better fruit than that at my own house, but I stole the fruit not because I wanted to eat the fruit, but because I wanted the thrill of stealing. I'm sure all of us can relate to that at some point, doing something, not because we really wanted the act in and of itself, but because we wanted to disobey. That's the effect of the law. Not because the law is broken. Nothing that God makes is broken in and of itself, but rather because we're broken. This is a profound claim that he's making here, that Paul's making. If you're a first century Jew, you think the law is God's means of curbing sin. Paul says it actually accelerates sin. The law comes in and it increases your trespasses. Rather than slow sin down, it actually speeds it up. The law isn't a brake pedal on sin. It's a gas pedal. It's an accelerator. We've used the analogy before of, of driving a car. A car is like the law. It's a good thing. It gets you where you want to go. But imagine that you're plastered. You're hammered. You're just absolutely drunk. Now that car is no longer functioning as a good thing. It's not functioning as it was intended. 
Again, not because the car is broken, but because you are. That's the power of sin. That's how the power of sin is the law. Far from preventing sin, it actually exacerbates it. So the law and sin and death are like this boa constrictor, tightening us, squeezing us. With each, there's this tighter constriction to seal our fate. As John Calvin writes, death has no other weapon except sin with which to wound us since death comes from the wrath of God. But God is angry only with our sins. Do away with sin then and death will not be able to harm us anymore. It is the law of God that gives uh, that sting its deadly power. Or David Garland, uh, a modern commentator, says, The law brings awareness of sinfulness, provokes impulses to sin, which then become deliberate transgressions. With the result that death tightens its stranglehold. The law cannot give life or impart righteousness, but brings only condemnation. Through Christ alone comes the gracious forgiveness of sin, redemption from the law, and the resurrection from the dead. I want to focus on that final recognition. Though there is no escape on our own from the law or from sin or from death, there is victory in Christ. As that great prophet Carrie Underwood says, Jesus, take the will. <laughs> right? You're drunk. Your sin has so affected you that you are completely inebriated. Some of you think you're not that sinful. That's like the person who is absolutely drunk that says, I'm not that drunk. I can drive. You're drunk. You need someone else to drive. Christ alone is sober. Christ alone can carry us to our destination. And that thought provokes praise in Paul, notice that it's almost like he bursts out in a song of praise and gratitude at this reality. Paul does this often. He has this almost a, like a doxological sort of statement that he breaks out into sudden praise as he's writing. He says, thanks be to God. And that worship, that, that recognition of ultimate victory overflows into action, as you see in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your, your labor is not in vain. Here we see this beautiful uh, expression of the connection there is between eschatology, end times, and ethics. Lest you forget that all theology is practical. We've talked about that a lot this semester in theological equipping class. We were originally going to call it Practical theology, and then we said, you know what? All theology is practical, so we don't want to call it that. So we're calling it applied theology. Lest you forget that all theology is practical, notice this. Paul seems to think that what you believe about the future affects, profoundly affects, how you live in the present. Notice the therefore at the beginning of the verse. In other words, he says this verse flows out of an implication of the previous when most people think about eschatology, they think about left-behind books. They think about prophecy conferences. I once had a guy who asked me to coffee. He said he wanted to talk about eschatology. Great. Then he arrives, and he was carrying an actual physical huge scroll on which he, would written, he, had, uh, he had written his carefully researched. For those who weren't looking at me, I did air quotes. Carefully researched timeline of end times that no one had ever noticed in the Bible before. I didn't enjoy that coffee very much. <laughs> in reality, eschatology is not so much concerned with answering questions about the timing 
or the details, like what our body is going to be like or whatever it might be. Eschatology is primarily about giving hope. It's about fueling present obedience and faithfulness. In other words, our future hope is the fuel for our present faithfulness. Is that not what we've, is that not what we've seen throughout the chapter? If the resurrection isn't true, Paul said, why would I fight with wild beasts at Ephesus? Why would I willingly endure hardships? Why would I face persecution? Why would I ultimately be martyred? That would be absurd. That would be worthless. That would be vain. That's why Paul writes, if the resurrection isn't true, we are to all, of all men most to be pitied. But it isn't vain. It isn't absurd. It isn't worthless because of this future hope of resurrection. That's what frees us. That's what frees us to give away our money, to give away our time, to deny ourselves, to take up the cross, to give up worldly passions and worldly pleasures and worldly sins, even getting up early to read the Bible or come to church is silly if there's no resurrection, if there's no eternal reward. We're just wasting our time. There are better things to do than get up and gather in this room if the resurrection isn't true. Why not eat and drink for tomorrow you die? But in light of our hope, Paul gives these three ethical, moral commands first thing he says is be steadfast and immovable. This actually forms a nice bookend with how he began the chapter. If you remember, way back, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Notice this, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice the similarity there. Be steadfast, hold fast, be immovable, stand firm. Allow nothing to loose you from your moorings. After all, as Paul will write in, uh, in Romans, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you. Nothing can take your hope because it's not deposited in yourself. Your hope doesn't ultimately lie in your heart, in your will, in your desires, in your freedom, in your love, in your affections. Your hope is deposited in Christ himself. Remember, you don't save yourself. Christ has done it all. So remain steadfast, remain immovable. But at the same time, don't just stand still. Don't just circle the wagons and stare up into the sky waiting for Jesus. Rather, he says that we are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. In the context of uh, Corinthians, this relates, this phrase relates to building up the church. That's the work of the Lord. What's the work of the Lord? The work of the Lord is to edify and encourage the saints, to make disciples, to evangelize the lost and to disciple believers. In the book of 2 Thessalonians, it seems like some people had just quit their jobs. They wanted to wait for Christ's return. So Paul says, that's absurd. He says, do your work. Don't be idle, but why? I think it's really interesting. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that you should work so that you might have something to share with others. You ever think that as a motivation for why you should work and how you should work? that God has explicitly connected your working with the ability to share with others. You don't work for yourself. You work for God and you work for others. 
That's fascinating. Everywhere you turn in Paul, you see this centrality of the church. Not just the local church, but the global church as well, the body and bride of Christ. When Paul says to abound in the work of the Lord, that doesn't mean you have to quit your job. In fact, for many of you, that would actually make you less able to do the work of the Lord. If everybody quit their job, no one would be able to work in order to pay for missions and church planting and all those kinds of things. doesn't mean to abound in the work of the Lord. doesn't mean that you have to become a vocational minister. Again, for most of you, that probably wouldn't be a good thing. Not many of you should become teachers, as James says. doesn't mean that you have to move overseas for missions. Though I do hope, by the way, just to correct against the potential swinging of the pendulum, I hope some of you consider vocational ministry. I hope some of you consider selling your possessions and moving overseas. But for most of us, this simply means living our lives for others, loving and serving the people whom God has provided for our joy and for theirs. And the last thing he writes is that knowing that our labor, your labor, is not in vain. Again, this has allusions to the beginning of the chapter where Paul says, if Christ isn't raised, then your faith is futile. It's worthless. It's vain. But if the dead are raised, then our labor is not in vain. Maybe you've heard the phrase before that someone was, quote, too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. Their heads are so in the clouds that they're too distracted by the future to care about the present, well, that shouldn't be true for Christians. In fact, it's the actually opposite. It's the future of Christianity which actually drives our present faithfulness. Because we're heavenly-minded, therefore we do earthly good. That's why missionaries like David Livingston, toward the end of his life, he would say, I never made a sacrifice. Why could he say that? Because the hope of resurrection. That's why Jim Elliot. The, uh, the, the martyr down in South America. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If the resurrection isn't true, everything's in vain. Why are you here? It doesn't matter. We don't matter. We're still dead in our sins. We might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But if the resurrection is true, then every sacrifice is worth it. Every act of obedience is valuable. Because one day every tear will be wiped away. Sin will be no more. Death itself will die. All that is sad will be untrue. And these mortal, perishable, corruptible, degenerating bodies will be made new. So Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us Everything in our culture, everything in, our, in this world pulls us to fix our eyes on now. To fix our eyes on our current bank accounts. To fix our eyes on our bellies and our appetites. To fix our eyes on ourselves. And yet everything in Scripture screams for us to look beyond the here and now. And so I pray that you would help us. That we'll take only a work of your sovereign spirit. So I pray that you would make us a people who love eschatology, not who 
wrangle about words and, and are, are overly obsessed with speculative sort of things, but people who are passionate for the reality that one day Jesus Christ will return and all that is sad will be untrue and, and we'll be with you forever. So I pray that you would fix our hope on that and that might inspire us and arouse us to present faithfulness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.